What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Private Library Podcast, Episode 3. Today, we're going to be reading World History Webster Revised from 1925. Um, Okay, first off, yeah, a lot of people probably thought this episode was going to be Zhangus. And they might have thought that because I might have said that on the last episode. But listen, uh, Zhangus Khan, Emperor of All Men is a very good book, but it is a very information-packed book. So it's not something I can just, like, skim over, jot a few notes down, and then read on the podcast. It really, I have to read it over a few times. So those episodes are are going to take, like, twice as long as something like this, or really a lot of the other books in my collection that I want to get to. So I don't want to spend like two or three months just on Genghis Khan, you know, not not until we get a few more listeners under our belt. So if if you guys can do me a favor and tell your friends, share the podcast, get us get get this fan base going a little more, get some uh, support for Genghis and we'll bring it back 100 percent. I just don't want to dedicate so much time to uh to to get nine people to listen to it. You know what I mean? I feel like it's better to... You know what they say, quantity over quality, right? I'm just kidding. This is going to be a, a quality episode. This is super interesting. So this book was printed in 1925, written in 1921. This is the World History Revised, by, written by Webster himself. Forgot his first name because because uh, I'm an idiot. Hutton, Hutton Webster, in Lincoln, Nebraska, March of 1925. Written in 1921, but that this that's the print date. So, uh, yeah, basically we're gonna see what what they thought prehistory was like in 1921. Should be really interesting. Actually, I already read it. And it is really interesting. And then later on, we're going to get to some other things. They have some really funny thoughts on, like, Rome and Greece and stuff. But mainly, at the end, uh, when they talk about current day, well, current day in 1921. But, you know, hopes for the future, things like that. They talk about Germany, and it's really sad what they thought Germany would have been compared to what they turned out to be. Uh, which is obviously the Nazis. But uh, yeah, today we're doing prehistory, and then we're just going to jump around through this book. We're not necessarily going to go chapter by chapter, um, and we're just going to highlight some of the funniest things. But yeah, let's uh, let's dive in. Oh, and most importantly, no matter how you got here or what you're going through, thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you're here. World History, Chapter 1, Prehistoric Times History is a narrative of what civilized men have thought or done in past times, whether a day, a year, a century, or a millennium ago. Since men do not live in isolation, but everywhere in association, history is necessarily concerned with social groups and especially with states and nations. Just as biography describes the life of individuals, So, history relates the rise, progress, and decline of human societies. 
History does not limit its attention to a fraction of the community to the exclusion of the rest. It does not deal solely with rulers of warriors, with forms of government, public affairs, and domestic or foreign wars. More and more, history becomes an account of the entire culture of a people. The historian wants to learn about their houses, furniture, costumes, and food, what occupants they followed, what schools they supported, what beliefs and superstitions they held, what amusements and festivals they enjoyed. Human progress in invention, science, art, music, literature, morals, religion, and other aspects of civilization is what chiefly interests the historical student of today. Civilization is a recent thing, almost a thing of yesterday. It began not more than five or six thousand years ago in the river valleys of Egypt and western Asia. The Egyptians and Babylonians by this time were cultivating the soil, laying out roads and canals, working mines, building cities, organizing stable governments, and keeping written records. All the rest of the world was then inhabited by savage and barbarous peoples. Such are still found in every continent. The savage is a mere child of nature. <clears throat> He secures food from wild plants and animals. He knows nothing of metals, but makes his tools and weapons of wood, bone, and stone. He hears little or no clothing, and his home is merely a cave, a rock shelter, or a rude bark hut. Such miserable folk occupy the interior of South America, Africa, Australia, New Guinea, the Philippines, and other regions. Barbarism forms a transitional stage between savagery and civilization. The barbarian has gained some control of nature. Has he has learned to sow and reap the fruits of the earth instead of depending entirely upon hunting and fishing for a food supply to domesticate animals and ordinarily to use implements of metal. Barbarous tribes at the present time include certain North American Indians, the Pacific Islanders, and most of the African Negroes. The facts collected by modern science make it certain that early man was first a savage and then a barbarian before he reached anywhere the stage of civilization. We know this not on the evidence of written records. Early man made neither inscriptions nor books, but from the things which he left behind in many parts of the world, particularly in Europe and the Mediterranean region. These include a few of his own bones, many bones of animals killed by him, and a great variety of tools, weapons, and other objects. Systematic study of such remains began during the 19th century. The study is still in its infancy, but it has gone far enough to afford some idea of human progress before the rise of civilization. Man's Place in Nature <clears throat> Astronomy and geology present a wonderful picture of the Earth in past ages. The astronomer tells us that space is for the most part mere emptiness, that at vast in intervals in this emptiness are the so-called fixed stars, flaming, inco incandescent ma masses of matter, that the sun is such a star and that it threw off one by one the planets of the solar system. Our Earth, thus separated from the parent sun, probably much more than a hundred million years ago. The, geolo the geologist tells us that in, the, in process of time, the cooling Earth gradually raised over its molten interior a thin crust of fire-fused rocks. Then the steam in the atmosphere began to condense, and falling upon this, fo and, uh, 
falling upon this crust, formed the first rivers, lakes, and seas. The dust and rock particles in the water accumulated in layers, or strata, which hardened into the stratified rocks. They reached to a depth of perhaps 25 miles below the surface and contained what geologists call fossils. These are the remains of plants and animals which, through, nat through natural agencies, have been buried in the earth and so preserved for long periods of time. Most of geological time since the origin of the earth is divided into three great epochs. The first or primary epoch saw the appearance of plants such as seaweeds, mosses, ferns, and finally of huge stemmed trees whose abundant vegetation formed our coal measures. It saw also the appearance of animals, beginning with simple invertebrate creatures, which lived in the water and passing to fishes and amphibians. The secondary epoch was especially the age of enormous reptiles, whose skeletons are shown in museums. During this time, bird-like animals developed and became true birds as they grew wings and modified their reptilian scales into feathers. In the third or tertiary epoch, there appeared for the first time a variety and abundance of mammals. Such is the record of the rocks for untold millions of years before the first traces of man. The tertiary epoch was characterized by a semi-tropical climate, even in the Arctic region. Toward the close of the tertiary, profound climate changes began to occur in northern latitudes, producing what is called the Ice Age. An immense ice cap formed in the lands encircling the North Pole and gradually moved southward, North America to the valleys of the Ohio and the Missouri, and Europe to the Rhine and the Thames, were covered by an icy mass estimated to have exceeded a mile in thickness. Great glaciers also arose in the Alps, Pyrenees, and Caucasus, and descended from these mountains into far, far into the plains. The Ice Age, despite its name, was not one of uninterrupted cold. There seemed to have been four advances and retreats of the ice, resulting in as many more or less warm intervals. The accompanying map represents Europe in the second glacial stage, the period of the greatest extension of ice fields and glaciers. Guesses about the duration of the Ice Age vary considerably. One estimate makes it begin about 500,000 years ago. Our own post-glacial stage may have begun about 25,000 years ago. The geography of Europe in the Ice Age was unlike what it is today. Considerable areas now submerged beneath the Atlantic Ocean were then dry land. Great Britain and Ireland formed part of the continent, and no North Sea separated them from Scandinavia. The Mediterranean basin contained two inland seas. Europe was united to both Africa and Asia, where are now the Strait of Gib Gibraltar, the island of Sicily, and the Dardanelles. Dardanelles, sorry. The land bridges thus formed afforded an easy entrance into Europe for the great African and Asiatic mammals, and perhaps for earliest man. The most ancient traces of man are associated with the Ice Age. During the past 75 years, a number of human fossils, including both skulls and skeletons, have been found in caves and rock shelters, especially those of England, France, Belgium, and western Germany. Archaeologists studying such fossils believe that they indicate the former existence in this part of the world of two different human types. One is called Neanderthal Man, the name being derived from the German Valley where remains were found as far back as 1856. 
Neanderthal man lived during the fourth glacial stage, along with the cave bear, cave lion, cave hyena, and other animals now extinct. Thousands of years passed before there appeared in Europe another human type called Cro-Magnon, from the name of a French cave where five skeletons were unearthed from 1868. Cro-Magnon man, as we know from these and other examples, was tall with a broad face and prominent nose, slightly developed eyebrow ridges, well-developed chin, and a large brain. His physical and mental development places him close to modern man, though he lived during early post-glacial times, when the woolly mammoth, woolly rhinoceros, bison, reindeer, and wild steppe horses still ranged throughout Western Europe. The Old Stone Age It takes an effort to visualize the condition of the earliest men. They were naked, fireless, houseless, without tools and weapons, without even articulate speech, and with nothing but their human hands and brains to secure food and protect themselves from the wild animals on every side. There are no living savages so low as this, for all use tools, make fire, construct shelters against rain and wind, speak elaborate languages, and possess other elements of culture. The, early, uh, the earliest men started without any culture. They had to acquire it by their own unaided efforts. Man's first tools and weapons were those that lay ready to his hand. A branch from a tree served as a spear. A thick stick in his strong arms became a club, while stones picked up at haphazard were thrown as missiles or used as pounders to crack nuts and crush big marrow bones. Eventually, man discovered that a shape implemented far was far more serviceable than an unshaped one. And so he began chipping flints into rude hatchets, knives, spearheads, borers, and the like. Such, obje such objects are called paleoliths, or old stones, and the period when they were produced is therefore known as the Paleolithic or Old Stone Age. It seems to have begun in the third intergl interglacial stage and probably lasted more than a 100,000 years. No slight skill is required to chip a flint along one face or both faces until it takes a symmetrical form, but practice makes perfect, and the Paleolithic age, for the most part, shows steady progress in manufacturing not only stone implements, but also those of bone, mammoth ivory, and reindeer horn. Many different kinds of implements adapted to special uses were gradually produced. In addition to those just mentioned, we find awls, wedges, saws, drills, chisels, barbed harpoons, and even so neat a device as a spear thrower. Bone and wooden handles were also devised, thus adding immensely to the effectiveness of tools and weapons. Paleolithic man learned fire-making. Just how, we cannot say. Probably, he struck a piece of iron py pyrites with a flint and then allowed the sparks to fall into a bed of dry leaves or moss. Some savages still do this, though more often they produce fire by rubbing two pieces of wood together. The discovery of fire made it possible for man to cook food instead of eating it raw, to smoke meats and thus preserve them indefinitely, to protect himself at night against animal enemies, and to make his cave home comfortable. Later, the use of fire enabled him to bake clay into pottery and to smelt the metals, but these great steps in progress were not taken in Paleolithic times. 
The men of the old Stone Age doubtless passed much of their time in the open following the game from place to place, and, when night came on, camping out under the stars. They built huts also. Some of their pictures represent rude structures with a central pole and occasionally with props on either side. More commonly, they took shelter under rock ledges and in caves, as some savages do today. Jeez, I really hate saying savages that much. Limestone caverns, often very deep and roomy, are especially numerous in Western Europe, where they seem to have been occupied by successive generations for many centuries. Huge accumulations of ashes and charcoal, stone implements, bones of animals, and sometimes those of man himself cover the floor of Paleolithic cave to a depth of many feet. These objects are often found sealed up tight in stalagmite deposits formed by lime-burdened water dropping from the roof. What was man's home has thus become a museum, only awaiting investigation by a trained student to reveal its story of the past. Paleolithic man at the outset must have lived on what nature supplied in the way of wild berries, nuts, roots, herbs, honey, the eggs of wild fowl, shellfish and grubs, and on the small animals which he could kill by throwing stones and sticks. As his implements improved and his skill increased, he became a fisher, trapper, and hunter of big game. He killed and ate the woolly mammoth, hippopotamus, European bison, reindeer, and especially the steppe horse, which at one time roamed the great herds over Western Europe. There is a Paleolithic station in France estimated to contain the bones of 100,000 horses. The pelts of the slain animals were made into covers and clothing, as we know from the discovery of flint skin scrapers and bone needles. Some of these cave dwellers were talented artists. They decorated stone and bone implements with engravings, modeled figures in clay, made stone and ivory statues, and covered the walls of their, <coughs> of their cavern homes with a variety of paintings in red, yellow, brown, and other vivid colors. The subjects are generally animals, though a few representations of the human form have also been found. The best Paleolithic pictures are remarkably lifelike, far surpassing the effortless modern savages. Jeez. The men who made them were evidently close observers of animal life. The cave dwellers apparently had a rude form of religion. Bodies buried in caves were sometimes surrounded by offerings of food, implements, and ornaments, which must have been intended for the use of the deceased. Such funeral rites point to a belief in the soul and in its survival after death. There are other aspects of Paleolithic culture about which little or nothing can be learned with certainty. We, we can only surmise from what is known of present-day savages that even this remote period, people had begun to cooperate in hunting for the defense against animal and human foes. Each group must have been small, a few hundred individuals at the most, for population was scanty. Government doubtless existed, but whether by chiefs or by the elders or the little community we cannot say. Probably the family had also also had appeared. The men and women were beginning to live together more or less permanently under some form of marriage. The social life of man is very ancient, as well as his religion, art, and material culture. The New Stone Age <clears throat> The Neolithic or New Stone Age 
When men began to grind and polish some of their stone implements after chipping them, dawned in Europe probably less than 10,000 years ago. The map of Europe in this period presented nearly the same outlines as today. Great Britain and Ireland were now separated from the continent by the shallow waters of the North Sea, English Channel, and Irish Sea. Owing to the sinking of the Mediterranean area, Spain and Italy were no longer joined to North Africa by land bridges. The plants which flourished in colder Paleolithic times gave place to those characteristic of the temperate climate, and vast forests began to cover what had formerly been treeless steppes. The ruly rhinoceros, woolly mammoth, and cave bear became extinct. The musk sheep and reindeer retreated to Arctic latitudes, while the hippopotamus, elephant, and other big mammals found their way to tropical zones. The animals associated with Neolithic men represented species familiar to us, except for some survivals, such as the elk, wild boar, and European bison. We do not yet know what became of Paleolithic men. They may have become extinct. They may have followed the retreat, the retreating ice sheet and the retreating reindeer toward the northeast into Siberia and Arctic America. Or they may have remained in their old locations and intermingled with the invading Neolithic peoples. The newcomers apparently came from Western Asia and Northern Africa and gradually spread all over Europe. The Neolithic peoples belonged to the white race. Their blood flows in the veins of modern Europeans, who are chiefly their descendants. Our knowledge of the Neolithic Age comes not from deep-lying or sealed-up deposits, such as those in Paleolithic, Pale, Paleolithic caves, but from the remains found on or near the surface of the soil or in rubbish heaps and burial places. Along the Baltic coast stretch huge, huge mounds of bones and shells, marking the sites of former camping places. These, quote, kitchen middens have given them their Danish name, are, <clears throat> are, sometimes a thousand, are, are sometimes a thousand feet long, two to three hundred feet wide, and ten feet high. Implements of stone, bone, and wood, together with pieces of pottery and other things of human workmanship, are found in the kitchen middens. Switzerland affords numerous remains of lake dwellers who, for protection against their enemies, lived over the water in huts resting on sharpened piles driven into the bottom of the lake. The huts have disappeared, but the mud about the piles contained thousands of objects, including animal bones, seeds of various plants and fruits, implements, shreds of coarse, of coarse cloth, fragments of pottery, household utensils, and bits of furniture. Neolithic men also erected many stone monuments, either single pillars or groups of pillars. These are called minehurs and dolmens, respectively. The former often marked a grave. The latter usually served as sepulchres for the dead. They are rude memorials of far-off times and vanished peoples. The Neolithic Age covered only a brief space of time as compared with its predecessor, but it was an age of rapid progress. Neolithic implements, though still of stone, bone, and wood, were often of exceeding beauty and finish, particularly arrowheads, testifying to the invention of the bow, and stone axes with a sharp cutting edge. 
The men of the kitchen middens began to make pottery, chiefly for cooking vessels, and they domesticated the dog. The lake dwellers possessed goats, sheep, and swine, as well as dogs, plated baskets, spun and woven textiles, prepared leather, built boats, used wheeled carts, and, most important of all, cultivated some of the cereals, including wheat, barley, and millet. The new sources of food thus opened up Neolithic peoples to abandon the migratory life of hunters and to settle in permanent villages. Their community life must have, well, must have been well organized, for the erection of lake dwellings and stone monuments required the cooperation of many individuals. In short, Neolithic peoples were not savages. They had passed from savagery to bar barbarism. Neolithic culture was not confined to Europe. It also existed in Western Asia and Egypt and North Africa and on the islands of Cyprus and Crete. The entire basin of the Mediterranean formed a Neolithic center. Here the transition to use the metals first occurred. The Age of Metals Civilization rests on the metals. Stone is not pliable. It is very apt to split in use. It cannot be ground to a sharp edge. No wonder that in, the t in time men began to seek substitutes in the softer and more easily worked metals. Gold, silver, tin, and copper. These were often found in pure state and not as ores so that they can be readily extracted and worked cold. The American Indians in this way got pure copper from mines near Lake Superior and made metal spearheads, knives, and hatchets, which were modeled on stone implements. Other barbarous peoples have done the same thing. In fact, hammering the metals generally preceded smelting them. Credit for the invention of metallurgy, metal metallurgy, we'll call it that, I don't even know, belongs to the Egyptians. Some of the most ancient graves in Egypt, dating from about 4000 BC, contain needles and chisels made by smelting the crude copper ore found in the Nile Valley. At a very early period, the Egyptians began to work the copper mines on the peninsula of Sinai. The Babylonians probably obtained copper from the same region. Another source of copper was the island of Cyprus, which is rich in that metal. The very name of the island means copper, Greek Kupros. Copper implements gradually spread into Europe, and with their use the Neolithic Age gave way to the Age of Metals. But copper implements were soft and would not keep as an edge. Some ancient smith, more ingenious than his fellows, discovered that the addition of a small quantity of tin to the copper produced the much harder and tougher alloy called bronze. Where this simple but most important discovery took place we cannot say. Bronze made its appearance in Egypt at least as early as 3000 BC, and somewhat later in Cyprus, Crete, Asia Minor, and the coast of Greece. Traders subsequently carried the new metal throughout the length and breadth of Europe. The great durability and hardness of iron must have been soon noticed by metallurgists. Met metallurgists. That is a crazy word, man. But as compared with copper and tin, it was difficult both to mine and to smelt. Hence the introduction of iron occurred at quite a late period, and in some countries after the dawn of history. The Egyptians seemed to have made little use of iron before 1500 BC. They called it the, quote, metal of heaven, 
and as if they obtained it from meteorites. In the first five books of the Bible, iron is mentioned only 13 times, though copper and bronze are referred to 44 times. In the Homer, Homeric poems of the ancient Greece, we find iron considered so valuable that a lump of it is one of the chief prizes at athletic games. Western and Northern Europe became acquainted with iron only in the last thousand years before Christ. The superior qualities of iron have secured it preeminence among the metals. Nevertheless, peoples without any knowledge of iron are still met in remote parts of the world. The Australian tribes, for instance, continue to make stone implements as rude as those of Paleolithic man in Europe. The South Sea Islands, owing to their peculiar formation, produce no metals. Their inha inhabitants, when discovered a few centuries ago, were still in the Stone Age, and so ignorant of metal that they planted the first iron nails obtained from Europeans in the hope of raising a new crop. Among the Malays and the African Negroes, the knowledge and use of iron also followed immediately upon the Stone Age. The American Indians, before the discovery of the New World, knew nothing of iron. Most of them used stone implements like those of Neolithic Europe, together with unsmelted copper, gold, and silver. In Mexico and Peru, however, smelted copper and bronze were also known. India, Indochina, and China offered evidence of the regular secession in those regions of copper, bronze, and iron. Races of Man The different, the different races arose in prehistoric times as man gradually spread throughout the habitable earth. Racial distinctions are based on physical characteristics, especially skin color, head form, and texture of hair. Thus, the black-skinned peoples have long, narrow heads and crisp, woolly hair. The yellow-skinned peoples, on the contrary, have short, broad heads and straight, lank hair. Less important racial distinctions are found in the shape of the nose as thin and prominent or large and flat, and the orbit of the eyes as horizontal or oblique, compared to the almond eyes of Orientals, and in the extent to which the upper and lower jaws project beyond the line of the face. All these physical characteristics reflect the influence and climate and natural surroundings on early man in various parts of the world. They seem to have changed little or not at all during the historic times. Five or six thousand years ago, they were marked as now, judging from pictures and old, ancient, old Egyptian monuments from the examination of ancient skulls. Three primary varieties of man are distinguished, the black, negroid, race, the yellow mongoloid race, and the white Caucasian race. The classification is not altogether satisfactory. The, the Australians, among whom negroid traits pre preponderate, nevertheless resemble Caucasian in some respects, and the mongoloid Polynesians possess both physical Caucasian and negroid resemblances. While important differences separate both Malays and American Indians from other members of the yellow race. Jeez. Again, various peoples of Asiatic origin, Ottoman Turks, Bulgarians, Magyars, or Hungarians, Estonians, Finns, and Laps have so blended with Caucasian peoples in Europe as to lose almost entirely their Mongoloid characteristics. No race indeed is pure. Repeated migrations, raids, and conquests brought about racial intermixture almost everywhere. 
At the dawn of history, each of the three races occupied quite distinct geographical areas. The black race held most of Africa south of the Sahara, southern India, New Guinea, and the adjacent lands, and Australia. The yellow race held the north, east, and center of Asia, whence it spread over the Malay archipelago, archipelago, the islands of the Pacific, and the New World. The white race was limited to Europe, northern Africa, and southwestern Asia. The last four centuries have been a wonderful expansion of the white race, which now forms the bulk of the population of North America, South America, South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. Great. Excepting the American Negroes, the black race is still in the savage or in the barbarian stage of culture. The same holds true of the yellow race and the important exceptions of the Chinese, Indo-Chinese, and Japanese. Civilization has been developed and history has been made chiefly by, oof, okay, the white race. That's rough. Languages of Man The different types of language also took shape during the prehistoric period. The first languages must have been simple enough. Man doubtless esked out his imperfect speech with expressive gestures and cries of alarm or passion, such as the lower animals make. But all this was very remote. The languages of even the lowest savages today are complex in structure and copious in vocabulary, thus indicating how far they have developed in the course of ages. The thousands of languages and dialects now spoken throughout the world belong to one or another of three groups. Agultination languages show grammatical relations by adding sounds and syllables to the main word. Thus, the suffix tar in Turkish makes the plural, the suffix lik indicates quality, and the suffix li signifies possession. English uses agglination to a slight extent, Compare, compare such words as justly and unjustly, careless, carelessly. Isolating languages show grammatical relations chiefly by the order of the words. Thus, in Chinese, the word ta means great, greatness, greatly, or to enlarge, according to its position in the phrase. Inflectional languages regularly employ conjunctions and de- de- declensions to set forth the relegations of words to one another. These three linguistic groups have a fairly definite association with the races of man. Agulinating languages are most widely diffused, being spoken by the black race and part of the yellow race. Isolating languages are found only in Asia among Chinese, Indochinese, Tibetans, and Malays. Inflectional languages are confined to the white race. The languages of the white race belong, with some exceptions, to one or another of three families. Least important historically is the Hamitic family, named after Ham, a son of Noah. Hamitic languages are still spoken in northern and eastern Africa, some of them by peoples who have more or less mixed with Negroes. Ancient Egyptian was a Hamitic language. The second family is that of the Semitic languages, so-called from Shem, another son of Noah. Semitic-speaking peoples in antiquity include Babylonians, Assyrians, Hebrews, Phoenicians, and Arabs. To these must be added the Abyssinians of Eastern Africa. 
The Semites, as the map shows, originally form a compact group, but Arabs are now found everywhere in northern Africa, while Hebrews, Jews, have spread all over the world. The third family is that of the Indo-European languages. This name indicates that they are found in both India and Europe. The peoples using the peoples using Indo-European languages in antiquity formed a widely extinct group, which which, which reached from India across Asia and Europe to the British Isles and Scandinavia. Hindus in India, Medes and Persians in the plateau of Iran, Greeks and Italians, and the inhabitants of Eastern and Western Europe spoke related tongues. Their likeness is illustrated by the common words for relationship. Terms such as father, mother, brother, and daughter occur with slight changes in form in nearly all the Indo-European languages. Thus, father in Sanskrit, the old Hindu language, is Pitar, the ancient Persian, Pidar in Greek, Pater in Latin, Pater, and in German, Vater. There must have been, at one time, a single speech from which all the Indo-European languages have descended, but where it was spoken, whether in Asia or in Europe, we cannot determine. The whole historic age may be conveniently divided into three periods. Ancient history began with Oriental peoples, who were the first to develop the arts of civilization, deals with the, with the Greeks, and ends with the Romans, who built up the empire embracing most of the civilized world. Medieval history is concerned with the peoples of Eastern and Western Europe. It includes a period of about a thousand years from the breakup of the Roman Empire at the end of the 5th century to close of the 15th century. Modern history covers the last 400 years and now embraces almost all of mankind. It is no longer a history of Asia or of Europe, but of the world. Also, before we start, um, there's going to be a lot of uh, very racially insensitive and culturally insensitive. Yeah, they were uh, they were pretty racist back in the 1920s, guys. So, yeah, that's just kind of that's your trigger warning. So, yeah, I'm going to say some crazy things, and uh, it's not me saying them. So, don't get mad. All right, if you can't handle. Uh, scientific terms from the 1920s they're kind of rough but if you don't think you can handle it this is your warning so just wanted to get that out all right well that was racist very very racist but uh very funny i think not gonna lie so yeah let's break it down so first we're introduced to the universe, basically, space, they just call it space, and uh, the only thing described in outer space is the stars, one of which being the sun, and the sun shot out each planet one by one, one of those being the earth, and then the earth cooled down, and all the geological features formed, like rivers and lakes and the oceans and stuff, and then... It tells us that history can be divided into three great epochs, is what they call it. So, the first one was like all the plants and early sea life, the invertebrates and stuff like that. The second epoch 
um, yeah, secondary epoch is what it's called, was basically dinosaurs. They don't say dinosaurs, but they basically say dinosaurs, um, giant reptiles, and eventually birds, which adapted from, you know, they say the scales turned into feathers, which I don't know about that. That's kind of weird. I don't know if that's a... People still think that's true. I didn't look that one up. But that that one caught my eye on my last read-through. And then, uh, finally, there's the tertiary epoch. And that's the one that we're in now. And that would be the the mammals, the rise of mammals, and eventually humans, ultimately. And then it tells us about the Ice Age, which ends about 25,000 years ago, right? And after this is where mammals really start to shine, especially humans. And uh, the first humans are introduced to us being called Neanderthals. So Neanderthals... Nothing's changed much about Neanderthals. They're basically just stupid Homo sapiens. Um, but it does say that sometime after the Neanderthals, there was something called the Cro Magnon Man. Cro Magnon, C R O M A G N O N. You can look that up for yourself for further study, but it it's not really a thing anymore. It's just kind of a weird uh weird subspecies of Neanderthal that they used to uh, classify. So, um, one thing I did want to mention is that it's kind of funny. There's uh, absolutely no mention of the word evolution anywhere. And they kind of hint at the idea, but then really outright state it. It's just funny because that was a uh, that was a real that was a real hot topic back then, you know. Not especially in America and in the South, you couldn't you couldn't just start talking about evolution and stuff. So I think that's really interesting, something that, that that's cool to take note of. So um, eventually we get to the old Stone Age, and really all that is, man. It's just telling us that they started making stools, tools and changing sticks and stones and shaping them to be spears and knives and weapons. Um, one thing that I found weird is that it, it talks about uh, fire making. And it says that the savages to this day still rub sticks together to rubbing to rub two pieces of wood together. To produce fire. A. Holy crap. Why you gotta call them savages. And B. No they don't. No one does that. That is not. No. That's not a thing. Rubbing two pieces of wood together. You'll never make a fire like that. If you can. If you can record yourself rubbing two pieces of wood together. And starting a fire. And send it to me. I'll give you my whole. All my money in the bank. All of it will go to you. Um. So, yeah, I just thought that was really funny and negligent. But, yeah, man, they really... That's our, our first mention, really, of the savages. Um, 
and they basically they they classify humans as like savages being barely above animals and then barbarians being above that and then basically white people being above that is very uh is very they they like to put every every race of person into these very narrow lanes it's very funny how they do that but um yeah so basically after that we just we get some vague descriptions of religion and art it's nothing really that fascinating nothing i'm gonna go over because i i I mean i didn't notice anything crazy uh that would you can tell they didn't have a lot of information for this stuff or they didn't want to go into it into too much detail because it's all very vague in general but we uh we come across the new stone age and basically people are just making slightly more advanced tools um they're not using metal yet and then eventually we get to the metal age and uh that's where things really start to pop off um people start using copper and then they realize if you add some tin to your copper you get what's called bronze and it's way stronger than both of those things so that's really that's pretty much true yeah they got that one right and then everything in there is pretty boring until you get to races of man and uh dude it's just it's crazy It's crazy how, I mean, I guess I get it. Like, this is the first time people were really trying to scientifically classify human beings as, as in a scientific manner like this. So I understand, I guess, where why they made it like this and made it so insensitive. Or insensitive is what we'd see it now. They didn't think so. Which makes sense is why it was written this way, but it's still like, wow, this is a very I don't understand a lot of these points. Like they 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 wanna break everyone into basically Asian, black and white. And then everyone else is just like a mixture of those three. Which is so silly. But uh Yeah, it made it very uncomfortable at times to read this. I mean I'm not gonna I'm not gonna harp on these terms. I don't love saying them, but mongoloid and negroid, like, good lord, dude. And then Caucasian. Caucasian sounds so good. We still use it today, but negroid and mongoloid, goodness gracious. They just sound so terrible. And then, of course, uh, at the end, we get the, uh, the very fun... Yes, here it is. Civilization has been developed and history has been chiefly has been made chiefly by the white race. So that undertone is really just held throughout the whole book, which you can imagine from the angle of people from 1921. But uh yeah, that's pretty much that's what that's really what makes this so interesting, you know? A the lack of uh information about what they're trying to talk about but b just the the lack of care for really anyone other than white people reading this it's 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 like not even 
it's from a generation even farther back than our grandparents. You know what I mean? These are this is a long time ago. So I think that's what makes this just so interesting to uh to read and that's why I was so excited to do this on the podcast. But yeah, that's basically it guys. I'm gonna go ahead and eat dinner. I've had a really crazy day. It was fun though. I'm glad you guys stopped by. Uh make sure you follow me on social media, follow the podcast, stay up to date with episodes. However you're listening to this, rate it, like it, follow me on there. And uh yeah, appreciate you guys. I'll see you later.